So now today, I'd like to be sharing the Last Supper with you. Okay, we're going to be talking about the Last Supper the next two weeks, and the title of this, uh, the message is The Last Supper of Mark 14. This is going to be part one. Next week will be part two. And we're going to, we're going to end each service for the next two weeks sharing the Lord's Supper. Okay? So we usually do it the first Sunday of every month. You're going to get a number of them uh, this month. And this is, again, something that we do as we are coming across passages that... Um, that talked to us about the Last Supper. So I'm going to ask you to stand, Mark chapter 14, 12 through 21. The word of our Lord. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared and there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them and they prepared the Passover. And in the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly I say to you, One of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born." So, Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord God, this is such a powerful Lord God. It is a powerful Lord God experience. It is a powerful event, Lord, in your life. I pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds to receive the gems, Lord God, the treasure that we see in the Last Supper. And that, Lord God, it would enrich our lives. It would bring a a greater peace, a greater joy, a greater power to our lives. And through Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen. Amen. So you can be seated. So again, the Last Supper is, I mean, it's flowing with wealth. It's flowing with wonder. It's flowing with glory. It's flowing with joy, with peace, with incredible revelation. So when we read from Mark here, chapter 14, verse 12 through 21... In the Synoptic Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have this account. It's pretty much the same from each of the three Gospels. Slight slight, um, additions, okay? They're all seeing it from a different perspective. But it's pretty much the same. It's the same account of the Last Supper. You go to the Gospel of John from chapter 13 to 17, and you have all these things, again, that, that if you're just reading this account, you're unaware of. And again, it, it, is, it is literally, again, filled with these incredible life lessons that when we put into practice, they enhance our lives. They, they bring value, uh, power, uh, fruit, you know, peace, joy, when these life lessons are, are applied to our life. Now, I want to clear up something, and after Miguel had said this to me, I really dug deep into this just so that there's no confusion, because sometimes we get confused Jesus shared the Passover on Thursday. But Friday was the actual Judean Passover when he was crucified. 
So some skeptics take that and say, look, there's an error. He should have been celebrating the Passover on Friday when he actually celebrated it on Thursday. Does anybody have an answer to understand that? And the, and the answer is, um, is there, okay, in history and tradition. So the Talmud explains why Jesus did this. And Josephus, Josephus Flavius, the uh, historian who lived in the time of Jesus, explains it. So if you look here, here is your explanation that essentially the Judean calendar, okay, is different from the Galilean calendar in that in the Galilean calendar, the day began at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 a.m. And in the Judean calendar, the day began at 6 p.m. and ended at 6 p.m. So Jesus was from Galilee. So he celebrates the Galilean Passover with the apostles on Thursday night. And then on Friday, he is crucified, according to the Judean counselor, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Ju uh, the Judean uh, calendar. So it's a very simple explanation. Now, on Friday, at 9 o'clock in the morning, the Passover lamb, there, there were many lambs that were sacrificed, as many as 200,000 during Passover week. Okay, and that was a survey that was taken by the Roman emperor. <laughs> so there was one specific Passover lamb, the Passover lamb, right? The, 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 the number one Passover lamb that on the Passover, the Judean Passover was taken at 9 o'clock in the morning and he was basically tied to the horn. There were four horns of the brazen altar and he was tied uh, to the horn of the brazen altar. What time in the morning was Jesus nailed to the cross? The Bible makes it very clear. Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. The Passover lamb. Isn't that cool? At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Passover lamb was sacrificed. His throat was slit, the blood was poured into the laver, the bread was poured upon the altar. At 3 o'clock, when did Jesus give up his spirit? Right about, right at 3 o'clock. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Now, coming back again to the Passover meal. And again, we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we'll do it in a few minutes. And we have a little thimble of, uh, you know, of grape juice and a little piece of bread. It was a meal. The Passover Seder. Some of you who are Jewish... You have had the privilege, some of you who are not Jewish, you still have celebrated, right, with Jewish people. And we, we celebrated the Passover Seder here for a number of years until we had too many people and we didn't have enough lambs for everybody who was coming. Because you had to make it some headway. It would be a great thing to do that again this year. And um, essentially, what you had in the Passover, man, I'm going to run through this real quick. And then I'm going to give to you, again, some of those main events that happened. You had four glasses of wine. The meal would begin, and by the way, those, those glasses of wine come from Exodus chapter 6.6. 6. Um, the meal would begin, okay, with, with the participation of everybody having a glass of wine. And by the way, that was usually wine that was watered down with water. When you're thinking four glasses of wine, that's a whole right, bottle of wine. Everybody would be drunk. They weren't drunk. drunk drunkenness is a disgrace to the, the Hebrew people. 
Okay, you see that in the Bible. Then the, uh, the leader, okay, the host, would wash his hands. And then he would take a matzah and he would break it, okay? And um, he would break it, and, and this is called the afekomen. And he would take a piece of the broken matzah and he would put it into a, a napkin. And then it would be hidden, Okay, for, for a period. So I see the Jewish people nodding, nodding their heads. Listen to what it says. This is interesting because afikom and the word means I have come. And in Hebrews 10, 7, it says, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is all written about me to do the will of God. At, at that point, then they would begin to, to actually um, share the story of the Passover. And that is from Exodus chapter 12. Uh, modern day version, there are four questions they use. Those questions were, were developed through tradition. It wasn't there in the time of Jesus. Then they would drink the second glass of wine. Then everyone would wash their hands. By the way, when everyone was washing their hands, okay, and it's interesting, I'm going to show you something Jesus did because he did something else. He washed something else. And then they would take the bitter herbs, the mara, which was symbolic of the, it's the bitterness of slavery. So you had these, these bitter herbs, that, that horseradish, ground horseradish that they, would, that they would eat. And then they would eat the meal. And the meal consisted of matzah, it consisted of lamb, and it consisted of the horoset. Horoset? Horoset. Horoset, Okay. It was a mixture of apples and honey and cinnamon, sweet wine. Then they would take the afikomen and they would open it up. It was hidden. And now it's opened up. I want you to start to see the symbolism here. And then the afikomen would be broken into pieces and everybody would participate. Then you had the third glass of wine. And then the children would go to the door. They would open the door waiting to see if Elijah was going to come. Then they would sing the Hallel. Hallel is Psalm 113 to 118. By the way, I want to encourage you, read the Hallel this week. Maybe you want to read it every day. They're short, they're short psalms. They're very easy. You could go through it in a, in a few minutes. Read the Hallel this week. And then they would have the fourth cup of wine. And then that would be the end of the Seder. Seder means essentially order of service. So that is what Jesus did, okay, at the Passover. But there are again a number of other things that are interspersed throughout this meal. It lasted six hours, five hours. So the first thing I want you to notice is the washing. So as the, as the host would wash his hands at the beginning of the meal, Jesus, he took off his outer garment, put a towel around his waist, and he did, really, this, this is the unthinkable. This is the, the amazing. This is Elohim, the creator, the sustainer, right? The, the Lord, the, the king of kings, God incarnate, he takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, takes on the role of a servant, and he begins to wash the dirty, filthy feet of men, which is a demonstration and, again, a foreshadow of what he was going to do just a few hours later on the cross.
and he comes to Peter. And <laughs> Peter goes, Whoa, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, If I don't wash your feet, you can have no part with me. So Peter, again, compulsive, impulsive Peter says, Then, Lord, you need to wash everything. You need to wash my head. You need to, I mean, you need to wash everything. And Jesus says to him, He who is bathed only needs to wash his feet. What did he mean? See, Peter was already bathed. Peter was already forgiven. Peter was already justified. And he just needed to wash his feet. What happens to us? See, we are forgiven in Christ. That's why people get, get confused. Why does God ask us to confess our sins when we have already been forgiven of all of our sins? Because we go out into the world and our feet get dirty. We're, we're in a dirty world. And sometimes, right, we sin. Now, that sin isn't going to send us to hell because we've received his forgiveness. But what it will do is break fellowship with God. Some of you may be here today and you don't feel close to God. Sin, you, 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 you are aware of that sin in your life. And it's separating you. You know that there's a separation. You don't feel that closeness to God. When you're praying, you don't feel that, that God is right there with you hearing your prayers. You don't feel that warm embrace of God's love and grace because there's sin that you have not repented from. And it, it blocks us. It, cre it creates a barrier between us and God. And that's why it's necessary for your pastor every day, every day, I come before God and I examine myself and I ask the Holy Spirit to examine me and reveal sins in my life, some of which I am usually very aware of and sometimes those I'm not, and I confess them one by one before the Lord to keep... That, that relationship close and not allow sin to be the barrier. I need to get my feet washed every day. So then, the Lord says this, verse 13 through 17, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. Who's your example? See, a lot of people in the church, they have a lot of examples from Hollywood or the sports world. I see them come in with their, their shirts on, right? Who's your example? For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most surely I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed. Makarios. Joy. Peace. Want to experience true, deep, abiding joy and peace in your life. Take on the towel and lift up the basin. Take on the towel and lift up the basin and serve others. There's a, a great American psychologist. He was asked a question, what do I need to do to be happy? Right? People want to be happy. They're not happy. Look at people, right? They're, they're kind of living in, in despair. What do I need to do? Right? Call manager was his name. So what, what do I need to do to be happy? 
And, and he said, go out the door, go down the street, cross over the railroad tracks, and the first person you see in need, help them. And he said, you'll find happiness. Pretty much the same thing Jesus is saying here. Because, because he's dealing with a, a group of men who are not really that much different than us, who are more concerned with themselves than others. See, they were, they were always arguing amongst themselves, who's the greatest? Who's the best? And, and in the Last Supper, you see this in Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as a younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Right there, right, Jesus says it. Who's greater? Those who are sitting, who are getting their feet washed, or the one who is washing their feet? Is it not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as one who serves? See, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. In the world, right, the, the, the leader rules. In the world, the, right, the, the ruler is, is, is supreme. In the kingdom of God, he who is the leader should be the servant of all. I don't get a kick from people in the church, sometimes deacons. And we have snow, or I'm out there, I'm shoveling snow. They come over and they grab the shovel and they're like, oh no, 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 let me do that. Or there's a mess in the bathroom and I'm in there, oh no, 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 let me, let me do that. I'll tell you this, Pastor Lou and I, since the beginning of this church, <laughs> we have been the ones who are washing the floors and cleaning the bathroom and shoveling the snow most of the time. But that's what God has called us to. Not to lord over the church. Not to rule over the church. And not to sit back and be served by you, but to serve you. Now that's what we're here for this morning. But the greatest in the kingdom are those who serve. But the greatest in the kingdom do not seek greatness. They seek to glorify the great one. In fact, I could really care less of having a front row seat of the last row in heaven. <laughs> I'll just be glad that I'm there because he died for me and he served me. And I'll be thanking him for all eternity. Second, second thing I want you to notice here is what we call the koinonia. Koinonia is, is, is the word fellowship. It's, it's the interaction between us and God. Our relationships. Uh, which I, I look at is the, the, the concept of koinonia is it is a great adventure of life interacting with, with each other experiencing each other enjoying each other it, it's something that's filled with wonder and um, when you look at the, the story of the Last Supper you know, I say this when you study the scriptures you will find all the way from Genesis to the book of the Revelation whatever story you're looking at you can find yourself in it. That's like one of the miracles and wonders of the Bible. It's, it's living word. You can, find yourself, you can find yourself right in the garden with Adam and Eve. You can find yourself there with Cain and Abel. In the time of Noah. In the time of Abraham. Right, right through the whole Bible. You can find yourself. It's, it's something that, that, is, that is living. And so where do you find yourself in the story of the Last Supper? Last Supper. 
So watch, watch this, this interaction here. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Oh, jo- um, uh, Joanne, I forgot this. I need to talk to you. It's really important right after service. Meet me up, just meet me up in my office at, 10, at, at, at 11 o'clock, 11, 11.45. It's really important. Gloria, I need you there too, both of you. It's really important. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? What are they doing? They're, they're, they're feeling guilty. By the way, ladies, I don't need to see you, but I just want to say this to you. Did you think that you were being called up to the office and there was something wrong, that you did something wrong? No, no, Gloria did. No. So Joanne's going like this. Joanne's going like this. I didn't do anything wrong. And Gloria's saying, me? Who, me? Through all the years, when I would say to somebody, and I don't do it from the pulpit, but when I'd say to somebody, look, can I meet with you up in my office, you know, after church, or can I meet with you on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night? And people are like, it's like they're being called to the principal's office, right? <laughs> Did I do something wrong? Sometimes people have said to me, Pastor, I really need to talk to you about something. And I'm like, oh, geez, did I do something wrong? <laughs> right? Because there's, there's a part of us that does things wrong. It's, it's, it's there. I, just, I hope they didn't, they didn't see me doing something wrong. So that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, one of you going to betray me. You know what they're all doing? They're going, who, me? <laughs> so he answered and he said to them, it is the one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. And the Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. I would have been good for that man if he had never been born. By the way, I picked on you too. You know why? You show me a lot of love. And I knew that you'd be okay with that and not walk out of here and saying, I'm leaving the church. I hate that pastor. <laughs> so what I want to show you, I want to show you something. I did, I did a period of my studies where I studied Christian art. And of course, I think the, the greatest one of the greatest pieces of Christian art is Da Vinci's Last Supper, which um, is 15 feet high and 29 feet long, and it's called a, a fresco. It was done on a wall, and it's, it's sad because this is what it would have looked like when it was first done, or something like it would have looked like when it was first done. This is what it looks like today. It wasn't taken care of through the centuries, and, and it's kind of sad. But um, in, in Da Vinci's Last Supper... What he, what he does, and there's like the names of the, you know, the apostles. It was, it was done, and essentially it's just when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. So here they are at dinner eating, and it's like a, the bomb that he threw right into the middle of the dinner table. And again, this is not how they were sitting, you know, they, they, were, they were reclining. They were sitting, it, was in a, it would have been in a circle or a square. But I want to I show you something unique about this again. The dynamics, the interaction, the koinonia, the fellowship, which is something to be experienced in our lives. So when Jesus says this, first, this is James and Philip and Thomas pointing upward. Notice the, the like, look at James, he's like, who, me? Right? And, and then you, you look here, Philip is pointing right at his heart. He's like, me? And Thomas, right? Thomas the doubter. Thomas pointing up to heaven saying, 
how could God do this? How could God let this happen? Wait, we've, been, we've been following you for three and a half years. And then you, you look here, this is Andrew, and um, he has his hands up, you know, just like Joanne did. She was like, well, right, that's like the defensive stance. Well, me? No way, man. I didn't do anything. And then you get, you get down to the end of the table. This is Matthew, Jude, and Simon. And again, look at the, the conversation. Who? who could, is it me? Is it, who is it? And then you look at um, Peter is talking to John, right? John, he's the one who lays his head upon the very heart of the Lord. And, and Peter knows, John, he, you're the guy, you got an in with him. You're closer to him than the rest of us. And Peter says to John, ask him who it is. And just one kind of unique thing and funny thing here. Notice Judas's elbow. There was a, a thing of salt. And when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, of course Judas was going out to betray him. Judas, you know, they thought a knee-jerk reaction. Well, here's an elbow reaction. He knocks over the salt. Which just again is this interaction. Otherwise, you find this throughout the scriptures. So this is, again, more of what it would have looked like. But there's human interaction happening, and I say this to you. It's the wonder, and sometimes, you know, we get frustrated with one another. We get disappointed with one another. We get angry with one another. But there's this, this, this joy in being able to interact and know one another, and in spite of one another, love one another, and care for one another. And it's, it's a, a, a great part of the adventure of life that he has, he has called us, and we call ourselves living word community. Most people have no sense of community in the day and age we live in. In, in, in my neighborhood, we used to have community. Now, you know, we have people, most of them work from home, so they never come out of the house. And those who do come out of the house, their car goes in the garage, they leave in the morning, and then they come back. They have landscapers who do everything. We never see them. Never see them. I've, I have neighbors right next door. I think I've only seen them twice. And people come to the church, and they have no sense of community. They have no sense of community. Most people in church, they just hop from church to church to church. And they, they always, they just find something wrong. They find something wrong with the pastor, find something wrong with the Sundays. They just find something wrong. And they, you know, and I'm amazed when I, you know, get into and talking to people. They've been in five churches in five years. Are you looking for the perfect church? Well, the problem is when you find it, you're going to join it. And then it's not going to be perfect anymore because you joined it. But no sense, no sense of community. And again, I, I believe koinonia, fellowship, that interaction, should be something that we embrace and something that Jesus really called. What did he say to us? It wasn't something like this, love. Um, in fact, right in the text here, love one another. And that's, and that's not some you know, soft emotional feeling. That, that's, it, it's an action word, agape. So just again... Beautiful interaction, beautiful koinonia. And where do you find yourself in the story? Hopefully, God forbid, you're not in Judas's seat. Or maybe 
God bless you, you're in John's seat, and today you're so close to Jesus, you can put your head on his bosom and you can hear his heart beating. Or maybe again, you're, you know, you're sitting there and you're just like, uh, who, me? Or like Peter, having to ask somebody to ask him because you're maybe not as close to him as you really need to be. And you could just go to him yourself. Number three, the promise. So there is a, a, a rich and wonderful promise in the Last Supper. And in verse 15 and through 18 of John chapter 14, Jesus says this, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, paraclete, comforter, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as often as I will come to you. I just want you to see God dwelling with man. So you go through the Old Testament to the New Testament, God creates places for us to commune with him. And one of those first places is the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, we, we look at this again. The tabernacle is a foreshadow. It is a typology of Jesus. Come commune with me, God says to the Israeli people. Come, this is the place of worship. It's the place of fellowship with God. It's the place of prayer. It's a place of communion. It's a place where they receive grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. Then God calls on Solomon to build the temple, this, this glorious temple that, that they built. It was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians, and then 70 years later, Ezra built another temple which wasn't anywhere near the glory of, of, of uh, Solomon's temple. But again, that's the place where, where they came, and they worshipped. When Jesus was walking on the earth, it was Ezra's temple which was renovated by King Herod. King Herod made it far more glorious than it was, but again, it was the place where you would come and you would fellowship with God and you would commune with God. Now, something interesting happens when Jesus came in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. See the word dwelling? The word is shenu. It's tabernacle or, or, or temple, right? Jesus is the place where we meet God. He's the place where we receive God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's mercy and God's healing where we commune with God. Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of His being. So it's, it's, it's at Jesus we're now come. So when the apostles were coming to Him and, and Mary and Mary and Mary were coming to Him, and the leper was coming to him, and the blind man was coming to him. It was the place where they are communing with God. Now watch, watch this. Last Supper. John 16, verse 5 through 7. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Right? You say, I'm going away. They're like... Lord, we don't want you to go away. He's been with them for three and a half years. They eat with him. They, they, they sleep next to him, right? They watch him doing his, his ministry, his teachings, his miracles. They've been empowered by him. And so he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, 
It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. It is better that I go away, that the Spirit would come. Why? Because now, where's the temple of God? That's right, you are the temple of God. This is profound. It's, it's hard for you to wrap your minds around this, that you are the very temple of God. I'll tell you, it's more caught than taught. It has to be experienced. Just, just as the tabernacle in the time of Moses and the temple, you had three courts. You had the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. It tells us in Second Thessalonians that we are body, soul, and spirit. You are a temple with a body, a soul, and a spirit. We are familiar with our bodies. Our soul, the place where we think, the place where we reason, where we make decisions, where we experience emotion. And then the spirit, the very place where we commune with God. We are temples of the spirit. Look at what... Jesus, again, I'll bring you back to John 14. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The spirit of God indwelling us. How many of you realize that you are not only the temples of the spirit of God but of the Holy Trinity? The dwelling place, the very dwelling place of God. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word and my Father will love him. Now watch this. My Father will love him and we, notice the word we. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we will come to him and make our home with him. We are the very dwelling place of the triune God. How different would your life be if you really entered into that? Became aware of it. And if you're sitting there and wondering, I'll give you this real quick, to understand the Trinity, you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct personas, personalities. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They are three separate personas, but yet they share the very nature. They are all God nature, the same sovereignty, the same love, the same grace, the same holiness, the same power, the same omniscience. They are God, and we are their dwelling place. That's profound, right? Okay, last thing that I'm going to share with you today, you'll get the rest next week, the challenge. Abraham Lincoln was attending a church in New York City. A friend had invited him there. And the friend said to him that the preacher is the the greatest preacher in all of New York. And um, Abraham Lincoln attended the church, and it was a great message, and after the service... They were leaving and the the man said to Lincoln, wasn't that a great sermon? Wasn't it just incredible? And he said it was was really good, but it was missing something. And the man looked at, at Abraham Lincoln and Lincoln said it was missing a challenge. And you'll notice this about the Lord. The Lord always challenged. You'll notice it about the apostles and the prophets. I think, I think something that, that in the time we live in, and I, I listen to a lot of, or I, I read a lot of sermons, I see a lot of sermons, and there's this, there's this kind of this conditioning in pastors in the seminaries, and conditioning, I think, in pastors to a lot of the church growth programs. You shouldn't challenge your people too much, because what happens is you're going to basically discourage them, and they'll leave, and they'll quit. So you, again, this whole 
kind of flakiness in Christianity today of people just floating from church to church because nobody, again, wants to be challenged. But Jesus challenged. Jesus challenged. Jesus, Jesus, follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Right? He, you know, repent, believe. He, he challenged his followers continuously throughout his ministry. To me, to me, every great message needs to be, right, contain challenge. So here, here is, is the challenge of the Last Supper. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. That's it right there. Three words. Abide in me. And I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. The word, the word abide, it's translated remain. It's, it's hang in there. Stick, stick to it. Sit tight. Don't quit. Don't desert. Don't run away. And what did Jesus say in the parable of the sower? Of, of all who start, what is the percentage who actually finish? You have, you have 100 people who start. What did Jesus say? How many of them actually finish the race? Only a quarter. 25%. 75% quit. 75% fall away. Right at some right at the beginning. Some some come, you know, come to Jesus and are all excited, right? The devil comes and he snatches it away. Some it's a little later on. They get some persecution. Right, they're at work and um, you know, they got their Bible on their desk and they're at the uh, coffee machine and there are people saying whispering behind them, Oh, there's the Jesus freak. There there's the Jesus freak. There's a Jesus. And they're like, I can't take this, and they quit. I'm not going to church anymore. They think I'm a Jesus freak. And some, it's the pleasures of life, the comfort of life. Only 25% who start actually finish. This way, Jesus, again, this is such a, such a powerful challenge. Abide in me. He says, if, if you abide in me, you will plural. And notice the word, you will bear. Plural. The word bear is to carry. You will carry. What will you carry? If you abide in him, you will carry something. What are you carrying? Fruit. <laughs> you, you will carry much fruit. You will bear much fruit. Fruit is, is a direct result of abiding in Jesus. When our hearts, and by the way, everything flows from our hearts. I hope you realize that. If you don't like what's flowing from your life right now, take a look at your heart. When, when our hearts are abiding in Jesus in that rich relationship, there will be a, a, a flow of fruit. If our hearts are not abiding in Jesus, they're abiding in something. I mean, that fruit can be rancid. That, that fruit can be rotten. That fruit can be sour. But when we're abiding in Jesus, right, you, you will have the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit of Christian character. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, 
self-control. When we're, when we're abiding in Jesus, there will be the fruit of being able to lead people to Christ, of winning souls, the fruit of good works, the fruit of our lips, the words. You see, every day you have the opportunity. You can speak life into people or you can speak death into people. The fruit of, of praise. So you will have fruit. Then notice again what he said here. Not only will you have fruit, but you will have more fruit. And the, word there, the word there again, plenial, you will have, you will have many more fruits. Your, your abiding will increase and intensify, and so your fruits will increase. Your character, your Christian character, your love will grow. Your joy will grow. Your peace will grow. The effectiveness of your ministry, the effectiveness of your, of your witness, your peace, your works. And then he says, and you will have, right, more fruit, much fruit. And the word there is polos. That, that, is, a, that is abundant fruit. You will become an extremely abundantly fruitful person. And that fruit, right, that fruit will be abounding from your life into the lives of other people. People will come to you wanting to pluck the grapes from your life. I'm telling you that. People will, will want to come to you, they will come to you to pluck the fruit from your life. And you will just, you will just be giving it to them because, again, because you are abiding in Him and being fruitful. So those are the, the four things that we will focus on today. Next week I'm going to share with you four others. Key thing here, right? Key application in closing. Have you taken the basin and the towel? Have you taken the basin and the towel? I want to just I want to say something, something that I have heard in ministry for years. People say, I'm going to volunteer. Jesus isn't looking for volunteers. I want to assure, I want to assure you with that. When I get that, listen, if you want to volunteer, go to the United Way and you can volunteer. You can do your one day every 365 days. Jesus, he's, he doesn't call us to be volunteers. He calls us to be servants. And that's, that's an attitude, that's a mindset, that's a state of the heart. To, to be a, a servant, to take up the bowl and, and to take up the towel. I'll give you a great, a great little exercise to do. Every morning when you get out of bed... This is a good one. Keep your shoes underneath your bed so you have to get on your knees to get them. And when you're down on your knees, just commit to the Lord that right now I'm tying the towel of service around my waist and I'm now going to pick up the basin. And today I'm going to go out and I'm going to wash people's feet. You will, find, you will find your life becomes much more enriched doing that. And you're going to experience the macarius of, uh, of God. A second thing from our message, Quinonia, the fellowship, the interaction, the adventure of relationships in your homes, with your spouse, with your children, with your grandchildren, with your brothers and sisters, and, and then in life, in the church can be challenging, can be frustrating, can be incredibly fulfilling.
What would life be without people? And then the promise. A helper, a guide, Christ's power. You cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. If you are frustrated with your life and sin is dominating your life and Satan is having a heyday in your life, right? You're, you're defeated day after day after day by the devil, by temptations. I just want to say this to you. God is trying to bring you to a point. All those failures... He's trying to bring you to a point where you realize you cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. You can't. You, cannot live, you, you can't live the Christian life in your own power. You, you can't live the Christian life thinking that somehow you can do it on your own. And, and God is allowing that to happen to you to bring you to the place where you realize it's only by His Spirit. It's not by might, right? Not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. And that you have to yield to the Spirit. The Christian life. Here's a great lesson. You want to see if you... Didn't hear anything today? Hear this. This is the Christian life. He died for you. To live in you. To live through you. Boy, if I had a pen, I'd write that one down. He died for you. To live in you. To live through you. When you learn to yield to him, this surrendered life, I can't. I can't live it. I told my wife many years ago, I said to her, I give up. I told her, I give up. I'm, I'm, I'm giving up trying. I can't do it. I, I can't be holy. I, I, I can't obey God the way that he's calling. To. And it was then where I began to learn that it's by yielding and surrendering. Last point, abide in me. And you will begin to have much fruit more fruit, abundant fruit. So that is the, the message. Four key things of the Last Supper. Next week again, we'll dig into more. So we're going to share the Lord's Supper right now. So if you have your bread, you have your glass of juice, let's have the ushers come forward. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, you can do whatever you want. Jesus, on this, on this morning we thank you, Lord, for washing our feet, for cleansing us from all of our sins. For entering into, into our lives, Lord God, and bringing people into our lives that we can have koinonia with. For giving us, Lord God, the promise, the Holy Spirit, our source, Lord God, of power to live the Christian life. And for calling us, Lord God, to be fruitful as we abide in you. So Jesus, on that night that you broke the bread, Lord God, we remember. We remember, Lord, the great message that you gave, the great demonstration, Lord God, of your humble love. All the blessings, Lord God, that come to us through the Lord's Supper. 
For on that night the Lord Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, take this all of you and eat this, for this is my body. He said, do this in remembrance of me and in remembrance of our Lord's body that was given for us. Let us all partake. And then the Lord Jesus took the cup. He gave it to his disciples and he said to them, Take this, all of you, and drink this, for this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. He said, Do this in remembrance of me. And in remembrance of the Lord's blood, which was his life, that was given for us, to give us life, life eternal, life abundant. Let us all partake. So as we close in song, if you'd like to receive prayer for healing, could be healing of your bodies, healing of your emotions, you can come up over here. The elders will be there to pray for you. I'll ask the elders to come up, deacons to come up, and they'll be praying over you today.
So when, when you're leaving here, just kind of be still. Let these people be prayed for right now. And let the Lord uh, do His work. And Lord God, I just pray, Lord God, for all those who came forward here. Lord, seeking healing of body, of mind, of spirit, Lord. And Lord God, we again thank You. We praise You for all the healings we've seen here through the years. And we believe You're here right now and Your healing power is here to heal all. And we pray, Lord God, for Your glory, that You'd be glorified through these healings today. And that you'd go with us all and bring us home safely, Lord God. Bless our day, Lord. It's your day. And bless our week, Lord God. For every day is the day you've made. And every day should be one that we rejoice and be glad in. God go with you all. Amen.